0: There's nothing quite like the thrill and excitement of being out of your comfort zone and discovering new things. People go on adventures to challenge and to find out more about themselves. But is there a link between the imaginary world of adventure writing and travelling in pursuit of adventure? And can adventure be found in surprising places, like in the pages of a family history? I'm Amy and I'm an editor at Rough Guides. Guidebooks are perfect for planning the ins and outs of a trip, while adventure writing gives readers the chance to separate themselves from where they are and delve into a different environment. It can leave you with a real longing to visit the place you've read about, whether it's to mingle with the locals or try out a new activity. If you want to create your very own adventure, use our tailor-made trip service. Head to roughguides.com to build a unique trip like no other. Rough Guides is all about exploring the unknown, seeking adventure in unlikely places. Certainly by the
1: 1920s, Shanghai really lived up to its reputation. Um, it was called a paradise
2: for adventurers
1: or the Paris of the East.
2: When most people hear Shanghai, they immediately think of naughty Shanghai. The nightclubs, the casinos, the gangsters, the dance halls, the brothels, the smoky Sodom on of Asia.
0: And where better to find adventure than in Shanghai in the early part of the 20th century? Shanghai
3: attracted a lot of adventurers, a lot of people who were running away from things, a lot of people who were wanting to make a fast buck and didn't have many scruples. So I'm Maggie Ritchie and I'm an author. I've written two novels, Paris Kiss and Looking for Evelyn, and a third novel set in Scotland
0: and in Shanghai. In 2018, Maggie was shortlisted for the Wilbur and Niso Smith Adventure Writing Prize. The Wilbur and Niso Smith Foundation is dedicated to promoting adventure writing and was founded by the international best-selling adventure writer Wilbur Smith and his wife Niso. I caught up with Maggie to hear about the book she's been working on, Bold Girls, which a part of is set in Shanghai at the point where it was seen as a place for people to go in search of adventure.
3: When they disembarked, Bessie walked down the gangway into a sea of movement and noise. The cacophony came from the hordes of flashy new American cars that choked the road and honked at each other like angry geese. The shuddering blare of ship horns that ripped apart the air. The blood-curdling shrieks from steamers' whistles. The clatter of rickshaws the squeak of wheelbarrows and the incomprehensible cries of street hawkers and labourers unloading baggage from the ship. Underneath these piercing sounds ran the polyglot hubbub of a million conversations between the Chinese, European and Russian pedestrians crowding the quay. Bessie, used to the crowds and bustle of Glasgow and no stranger to London, Paris, Vienna and Rome, was nevertheless overwhelmed. Shanghai was a larger, busier, more impressive sight than any city she had seen before. The book is about a group of artists called the Glasgow Girls who attended the Glasgow School of Art at the turn of the century. And I've used a real-life Glasgow girl, Eleanor Alan Moore, as inspiration for my heroine Bessie um, and Eleanor Allen Moore, not only was a, a very good artist, but she moved to Shanghai in the 1920s, which gave me the inspiration for my heroine Eleanor Allen Moore attended Glasgow School of Art. At the beginning of the 20th century, she married a doctor, and he got a job in Shanghai. My heroine um, isn't quite so lucky in her choice of husband. She marries an urban missionary and they go out to Shanghai after she's attended Glasgow School of Art. When she's there, she she, indulges in the high life of
0: Shanghai. If you're writing a story about this, why didn't you just stay at home, use the power of the internet to research it? What made you want to go out there to travel there specifically for this book?
3: I went to Shanghai to soak up the atmosphere and it's still, you know, it's still an exciting polyglot city where a lot of people are on the make and there are an awful lot of, of different nationalities.
0: Adventure writing has the ability to transport you to the place you're reading about, to take in the unfamiliar script on a road sign, save a sharp, fragrant tastes or smells bask in the hot heat, or tingle in the freezing cold, feel the rhythm of the music beating through the air.
1: You could have multiple identities in Shanghai, so people might feel Scottish, but also British, and then um, have a loyalty to Shanghai, they might have lived there for many, many years, um, and also a wider loyalty to the British Empire, and those multi-layered identities were not
0: clashing for people. I also wanted to find out more about the period that Maggie was writing about, to discover the world in which Eleanor Allen Moore would have found herself. And so I got in touch with Isabella Jackson.
1: I'm Dr. Isabella Jackson. I'm an assistant professor in Chinese history at Trinity College Dublin. Up to now, I've mainly worked on the history of colonialism in China, which is largely focused on the history of Shanghai in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, so looking at the foreign presence there, um, how it worked, Um, how it affected Chinese society, how Chinese people responded, and um, how it came to an end. It's quite an unusual situation, the way colonialism worked in Shanghai. Certainly by the 1920s, Shanghai really lived up to its reputation. Um, It was called a paradise for adventurers, or the Paris of the East foreigners could have a big step up in their standards of living so uh, say a, a working class guy going out to shanghai would find himself with a salary that meant he could afford servants he could go out on the town night after night um, there was a big nightclub scene uh, this is the era of jazz so great jazz bands were playing lots of gambling lots of prostitution you know it was a city of of kind of sin and debauchery if you wanted that kind of thing People went to Shanghai to make money, and the authorities really just tried to facilitate that. The textile industry was the main industry of Shanghai, cotton, silk, and so on. It was really a city of newcomers. It was a city of migrants, people. um, More than half of the people in Shanghai had not been born there, and that's Chinese and foreign. Um, It was a very dynamic city.
0: Eleanor Allen Moore, Maggie's character, would have been one of these transient people, part of the huge emigre population who moved through Shanghai. The 1920s in Shanghai were booming, but political and global shifts would soon put an end to this golden age.
3: Japanese batteries are on the lookout for Chinese planes, and here they come, bombers. British Movietone News records in these first authentic pictures the actual scene at Shanghai as the bombs aimed at the Japanese warships Target she lived there until the, the Japanese invasion, uh, which was just before the outbreak of the Second World War. It was dangerous for expatriates at that time. She moved with her daughter to Hong Kong, and then when World War II broke out in 1939, she moved back to Scotland.
1: The city was probably at its peak in the 1920s and then things started to turn more sour as the nationalist government um, uh, became more powerful from a foreign point of view and from the Chinese point of view uh, with the rise of of Japanese imperialism. There was a police massacre in 1925. Twelve peaceful Chinese protesters were killed by the foreign um, run police force. And that led to um, widespread protests and, and a huge anti-imperialist movement. There was an undeclared war um, between China and Japan in Shanghai in early 1932. And that was one of the first times that um, civilians were bombed from the air. Um, it was widely reported around the world and uh, extremely shocking scenes obviously would become very Um, uh, well-recognized by the time of the Second World War, but were were very shocking to people in 1932. The global downturn, obviously, following the Wall Street crash, reached Shanghai in the 30s, um, so there was less money to be made and there was more unemployment. And then from 1937, there was full-scale war between China and Japan and a very bloody and long Battle of Shanghai over the summer and uh, into the autumn of 1937. And thereafter, apart from the foreign settlements, the rest of the city was under Japanese control.
0: Those who went to Shanghai looking for adventure in the 1920s would almost certainly have found it. But not all went in search of adventure, per se. In Maggie's book, her character Bessie, based on Eleanor Allen Moore, marries a Christian missionary. Along with the Western imperialism of the 19th century came missionaries from Europe and America, who set up schools and churches aimed at the people living in China at the time. These missionary outposts reached a peak in the 1920s.
2: My grandfather was an Anglican minister. He grew up in Fujian province, went to university in Shanghai, and was sent by the missionaries to Philadelphia for his uh, training. And then he went back to China and eventually relocated the family in in Shanghai in 1932. In my case, in retracing my family history, I'm looking at a part of Shanghai that is often just completely ignored, if thought about at all, which is religious Shanghai. And uh, specifically, uh, you know, from a point of view, not necessarily of the missionaries, but of the Chinese Christians who were there. You just heard the voice
0: of Jennifer Lin, a former reporter and China correspondent for the Philadelphia Enquirer, who wrote a book called Shanghai Faithful. Through multiple visits to Shanghai and the written words of her grandfather, Jennifer traces the roots of her Chinese family.
2: You know, I'm a reporter at heart, and I really wanted to unravel what happened to my family and why. Not only during the Cultural Revolution, but I, I kept looking further and further into the past. You know, and I I had a question about, well, why would these people even convert to Christianity in the first place? My father's uncle was a man who went by the name of Watchman Nee, and he was very famous in China. He's considered one of the leading religious figures of China of the 20th century. And Watchman Nee, unlike my grandfather, who was an Anglican priest and very much a part of the denominational church, Watchman Nee wanted nothing to do with the foreign missionary churches. And in the 1920s, 1930s, he actually established an indigenous church movement. And instead of practicing their their faith in in churches uh, with steeples and pews and stained glasses, they would meet in houses. My uncle Watchman Nee was really at the vanguard of something that became known as the house church movement. So they would meet in homes. Uh, in Shanghai, they had an assembly hall, which was really just three homes that were uh, attached, and that's where they would gather you know, every week. He represented more of a, a homegrown religious movement. He was Christian. He very much wanted a Chinese-rooted movement. After 1949, uh, the, the new regime wanted to exert more control over churches. And Watchman Nee and his followers were were somewhat reluctant to do that. He probably had close to 100,000 followers in China at the time. Uh, so he became uh, a, really a political threat. The government uh, arrested him in 1952 on kind of trumped up economic charges. And then he was tried in 1956, and he was deemed a counter-revolutionary. He was actually accused of using evangelism to undermine the revolution, and so again he was seen as a political threat. Uh, so that's why he was, uh, you know, sent away to prison and later to a labor camp. Uh, and this is also why the family faced, uh, you know, severe problems during the Cultural Revolution because. It was guilt by association. If you had a counter-revolutionary in the family tree, that was not good. And so that's one reason why my grandmother really uh, faced very harsh treatment during the Cultural Revolution. My grandfather left me this wonderful gift of his letters. And my Italian mother had the good sense to save them all. So when I was a kid growing up, I remember getting these letters, you know, every month it would be a blue Air mail, mail letter. And my grandfather spoke fluent English because from the time he was 10, he was educated by missionaries and he studied in the United States and an Ivy League university, the University of Pennsylvania. So his English was flawless. So every month he would write to us and he would tell us about life, uh, you know, at home. He would tell us about Trips that they took, he would, he would write about going to the park, he would often discuss the weather and people's health and what seems like mundane details about the family, but for me as a writer, these were essential in order to recreate kind of what was happening within the walls of this family uh, in, in, in old Shanghai.
0: While a lot can be learnt from these words, often writing can obscure the truth of the situation. I'm interested in how this idea of the mundane, or the ordinary, these encrypted messages in the letters of an older relative, can lead us to go in search of adventure. What makes life fascinating is the ordinary, because there is no one type of ordinary. In 1979, Jennifer was finally able to return, and this set her off on her own journey to discover more about the times in which her family had lived.
2: What was really important was to kind of walk in the shoes of my relatives. And what that meant was going to Shanghai and really seeing places from the family history. The first time I went to Shanghai in 1979, I'll I'll just never forget it. We landed in the old airport, the Hongqiao Airport. My father's relatives were waiting for us. We got into two vans and we drove in darkness from the airport to the, to the international settlement and i kind of had in my mind's eye an idea of what it was supposed to look like because my father had talked about his his home in shanghai and my grandfather was sending us these letters it was like nothing i could ever imagine i'll just never forget like looking out the window of the van as we're going to his home and and looking at the streets of the french concession which are are very shaded and beautiful, and there's, you know, they looked like they were from Europe. (laughs) Uh, But Shanghai at the time, again, this is 1979, it was as if it had been in a time warp from 1949. So the cars on the streets were very old-fashioned, the buses were very old-fashioned, and people wore very plain clothes. Now remember, this is only a few years after the end of the Cultural Revolution, so there was no color to their clothing. They wore white shirts and dark pants. Every time I go back, something is different. When I was there in 79, standing on the banks of the Wangpu River by the Bond and looking across the river, there was nothing there, nothing except farmland. Today, that's Pudong. And Pudong is a, you know, a, a, a neighborhood of Shanghai, a district of Shanghai, that's just chock full of these gleaming, office towers, one bigger than the next. So, can family history also lead us
0: to adventure? What can we learn from retracing these ghosts through history?
2: For my father, you know, we we spent two weeks in Shanghai and we were revisiting not only places from his childhood and his past, but also travelling to Beijing and to Nanjing and Suzhou and Hangzhou. The the trip, though, very quickly took a turn. An older relative of his pulled him aside and said to my father, do you have any idea what's happened to us since you've been gone? Although we were getting these letters from my grandfather until he died in 1973, they were not able to really uh, tell us what was happening in their lives because we had to assume that the letters would have been opened and read by the authorities. So my dad going back to Shanghai in 1979, he really didn't know what had gone on during the Cultural Revolution. It was really difficult for the family. You know, his parents had been tormented and particularly his mother. He was grappling with with kind of these, these ghosts from the past. That really was the catalyst for me to start researching the family history. When we travel,
0: we go in search of adventure. And as we've heard, it can be found in the most surprising of places.
2: It's been important for me to retrace my family history because this is who I am. Uh, You know, I am who I am because of all the people who came before me. And I think another reason too is that when I was growing up in the United States in the 60s and the 70s, I I really did not have much of a connection with my Chinese heritage. I mean, you have to remember, this was during the Vietnam War, and China was the enemy. They were on the other side of that battle. And I grew up in Philadelphia. My mother was Italian. We didn't live in Chinatown. So I really didn't have much of a connection. When I went to China for the first time, to Shanghai in 1979, suddenly I I realized that, you know, this is part of who I am. This is where my father came from. This is where I come from. And so I think it was really just that eternal quest to know who you are, where you came from.
0: We travel to discover more about who we are and where we come from, and also to learn about other people, cultures, and lifestyles. Maybe adventure writing by offering us alternate realities. Be they true and historical or imaginative explorations into new worlds, invite us to imagine how we would cope if we were placed in these extraordinary situations. I, I like to write
3: about women who overcome difficulties and will overcome prejudices and obstacles to what they what they want to achieve. I mean, that's I think that's the. the essence of of drama in a novel and it's one of the qualities I most admire in people if if they're they're
0: courageous and, and aren't knocked down and come back again. Adventure writing can inspire travel and in turn travel can inspire adventure writing. It allows us to expand our horizons, reflect from different perspectives and maybe, just maybe, inspire us to put ink to paper ourselves. thinking of your next adventure why not use our rough guides trip planning service where we can help you create a tailor-made trip just visit roughguides.com forward slash trips to find out more thanks to our contributors maggie ritchie isabella jackson and jennifer lynn for sharing their stories and thanks to the wilbur and niso smith foundation for all their help and amazing work this episode was hosted by me amy white and was produced by femi Oriogan williams for reduced listening. Join us in two weeks' time when we'll be looking at responsible photography, when you should and perhaps shouldn't take that photograph. If you can't wait till then, head over to the Insight Guide's The Travel Podcast, where next Monday they'll be exploring the Fez Medina in Morocco.